The program is Profiles. I'm your host for this installment. My name is Peter Jacoby. To be profiled today is an opera, a new opera, commissioned by Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. It is called Vincent and concerns the renowned painter Vincent van Gogh. Our approach toward profiling Vincent on this program is through the experience of the two men who created it, composer Bernard Ranz and librettist J.D. McClatchy. Now, were we to consider the opera as a work already completed by production, we would need to have invited a host of additional talents who, as we tape this program, are frantically busy winding up preparations for the opera's debut just a few days into the future. And we couldn't fit them all into our cozy studio. Uh, Perhaps we can delve into that aspect of an opera's birth at another time. But Vincent started in a composer's heart and mind and then was transmitted somehow into the consciousness of its librettist. And we will want to find out how this occurred. So to its parents, then, we turn, and I welcome them to the studio, the British-born Bernard Ranz, winner of the Pulitzer Prize in music for his song cycle, Conti del Sol. He has amassed an enviable portfolio of compositions for orchestra, for chamber and choral ensembles, for instrumental and vocal soloists. He is the Walter Bigelow Rosen Professor Emeritus of Music at Harvard, an inductee into the American Academy of Arts and Letters and former composer-in-residence with the Philadelphia Orchestra. J.D. McClatchy, whom friends call Sandy, uh, served as librettist for the Ned Roram operatic setting of Our Town, which premiered at Indiana University in 2006. He is an active librettist and poet, a teacher at Yale, where he also holds the post of editor of the distinguished Yale Review. And he has just recently published seven Mozart librettos, his go at the literary substance of Mozart's major operas. Now, Mr. Reins, I know this Vincent project uh, started with you, and I'd like, if possible, for you to trace its birth. How did this all begin? Quite by chance, uh, in 1973, I was in Amsterdam uh, on professional business, making concerts, happened to coincide with the opening of what was then the brand new Van Gogh Museum. Obviously, the first day and the first evening was open only to all of the grand people who who inhabit the uh, art world. Uh, but next day, it was open to the general public, and I was, I think, one of the first on the doorstep. I was pretty familiar with a lot of, of his paintings, as we, we all are from various museums and galleries in Europe and other parts of the world, but also through books and so on. But the experience of the layout of that opening uh, exhibition of his work was awesome. I mean, I can't think of another word. Familiar though many of the pieces were, to have them there displayed as they were, And very briefly, uh, it was this. On the ground floor was a collection of paintings of various periods and various styles by various painters, a collection amassed by his brother, uh, who was an art dealer. Then on the main gallery floor were all of the paintings that one recognizes from a mile away. That's Vincent van Gogh. 
And interestingly, a little staircase with two rooms, small rooms. One contained original Japanese prints that Vincent was very fond of and actually used as models uh, to make his own versions of them. But the most impressive time uh, for me in that uh, exhibition was the entire top floor was covered, the walls, with drawings in pencil, gouache, crayon, uh, charcoal, and I stood there and I thought, someday, somehow, somewhere, I will make a, a theatre work, possibly an opera, based on uh, my my feelings, my responses, my imagination of what this could be in the theatre. And in the subsequent 40 years, I researched it a great deal, read as much as I possibly could, made every visit to Amsterdam a must on my tours in Europe to go and uh, and also talk with the, with the curator who was very, very helpful. And uh, so that's how it began. And uh, this four decades later, here we are realizing what has been a, a large part of my life's dream. Well, he seems to have taken over part of your life. <laughs> yes, I think you could say that, yes. So I know you, of course, have done so much in those 40 years uh, in the realm of composition. But uh, when did you seriously get back to the subject, uh, to the point of producing an opera? Beginning to compose the opera. That was after uh, Sandy and I had, had met. We knew each other. Not well or thoroughly through our uh, membership of the American Academy, of which Sandy is currently the president. But again, coincidentally, we happened to share the same copyright lawyer. And it was he who is also uh, president of my publisher. Uh, he brought us together and said, I think that this this could, could work. And indeed, uh, he was right, absolutely right. Again, this is a series of coincidences. I came here to the to the campus about five years, five and a half years ago, when the new music ensemble was performing a program of my music, and the very piece you mentioned, Canti del Sole, I think, or Canti Lunatici, I think, at that time. My colleagues on the faculty here, the composer colleagues, knew of my interest in Van Gogh and what what that meant to me. And they, I think, must have uh, made Dean Richards aware of, of that. And uh, Gwyn Richards came to the to the concert and afterwards said, well, look, I'm very interested in what I hear about your fascination to compose an opera. I knew nothing about the upcoming 100th anniversary of the school or anything more than that. He said, would you come and make a presentation to us about it? And I said... Surely, I'm happy to, which I did. And then the the commission was issued. And uh, it was at that point then that uh, we had to begin to be professionally serious about getting the work underway. And uh, I had amassed quite a lot of uh, documents, notes that I'd made and collections of various things, most of which I handed over to Sandy, and he rummaged through those and then said, yes, we'll cut this and we'll do that and we'll start and I want to do this and that. And then began the back and forth between the two of us as to how to how to formulate the, the exact uh, nature of the opera, what it was about, how it would break down, what were the <clears throat> central thrusts of, the, of this character and how we wanted to portray him and so on. I'm sure you know, uh, 
Peter, that uh, in the interim, in fact, in 84, I made uh, two orchestral suites called Le Tambourin, which were early uh, sketches toward the opera, much of which uh, of that music is incorporated into mm. the opera, not as it now exists in the orchestra versions, but uh, uh, suites, but uh, it's threaded through the opera in, in various ways. Sometimes it's subterranean, so to speak. Other times it comes to the surface and anyone who knows those those suites would recognize immediately uh, moments of that. Well, Mr. McClatchy, you said yes. So what happens uh, when a librettist says yes to a project like this? What happened next? Well, the first thing to do is read uh, Bernard's notes and to begin, and then to plunge in uh, to... The letters. I mean, uh, the letters of Van Gogh are probably the mo- single most extraordinary trove of any artist's correspondence. And uh, they give a very compelling portrait of his obsessions, of his anxieties, of his um, joy in making things. It's a huge, uh, a huge correspondence. But I went back to that, um, and I, I had read a selection of it in the past, but never sat down to read the whole thing uh, and thought that if we were going to get inside the man from my dramatic point of view, um, that I had to understand how he thought about his work, not just the images of the sunflower, but what he thought he was doing and how he did it. So that took a bit. And then it's a question of shaping the material and uh, at the same time giving the composer musical opportunities. Uh, thinking musically, not just dramatically, about the material. And although uh, I think what came to light in that period of study and sketching was uh, a a sense of the life, not as simply the account of and indeed an allegory of the tortured artist making sublime work unrecognized in his lifetime and meeting a, a horrible end, uh, but uh, the other side of Van Gogh's life and mind was his extraordinary religious sensibility, which I don't think I'd been – that's not part of the popular mythology. And that his strong sense that making pictures was a way of getting closer to God through his creation. And he had a profound – he was the son of pastors. He started out to be a clergyman himself and was uh, – was no good at it. And it's not as if he turned to painting reluctantly, but he turned to it with a different sensibility and a different ambition than other painters have. And uh, it begins to uh, approaching God through his creation, uh, through a pair of shoes or through a flower or through a field. Uh, And it gives an extraordinarily rich dimension to the man and to the work and, I hope, to the character himself as he emerged for into the libretto. And how do you put that into words? Yeah, I think in many ways a, a librettist has to think abstractly in terms of music. But I think you also have to sit down and imagine the character from the inside to become the character. Uh, in ways, knowing all you know, knowing the man's words from his correspondence, whatever, you still have to make something compelling on stage. And the only way you can do that is to reach into yourself and say, ah, uh, what would this character, i.e., what would I say at a moment like this if I if I knew everything that Van Gogh meant? To make it, and so that you want the words of the characters to be convincing, 
as as human utterance as some uh, of uh, of a charged passionate man as well and you have to draw on reserves of your own passions to do that as well as uh, study so both of you really involved yourself deeply into this man's life into his into his mind into his heart yeah it's, uh, the opening line of the opera is when I feel the terrible need for religion I go out and paint the stars now the moment I got that line, I, first of all, uh, whatever else uh, I hoped for to get from Sandy, uh, I knew that I was working with the right person. He was he was a poet talking from the right from the opening, and uh, he used the term a moment or two ago about finding the right expression for music, and because of his experience in with libretti, both as a historian of libretti. And as a maker of them, uh, that's been something that I that I've treasured all from the moment we began working together. It, it it's not automatic; it doesn't come uh, easily uh, to find that kind of relationship with. No matter how much one has uh, experience and sympathy for literary texts as a composer, and I do, I, I I read voraciously and so on, and love poetry. But to to have it such that you you know it yields itself to music and it not only yields itself but it promotes musical thought in its rhythms in its assonance in its in in, in its vocabulary in, in its energies uh, it's different from just picking up a a sheet of words and trying to set them to music well the the counterpart to that is that um Yes, uh, you hope that lines are individual lines are charged and also move the plot the along. Plot I mean, they have they have a dramatic responsibility and a poetic responsibility. Let's say, yeah. but the most important thing for a librettist uh, is to know when to get out of the way mm-hmm. of the music, know when music can do so much more than words at a certain moment, and to uh, not to think that the text can do what music can do so much better. Well, when one reads about the relationships between librettists and composers, the Ponte and Mozart and von Hofmannsthal and Strauss and the various librettists of Verdi and Puccini, things didn't always go so smoothly. And <laughs> no. I gather, did they go smoothly with the two of you? Yes, I think, yes. I think they, they did, which is not to, to say that there were not questions in both directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, one particularly that I think Sandy uh, brought up early on and, uh, and uh, as revisited <laughs> as a question, why is there as much spoken text as there is? And his predilection and, I think, preference is to have everything sung. And I, I feel that there's certain information that can be quickly uh, dispensed with, not dispensed with in the sense of treating trivially, but that it's it's conveyed and it moves the drama along, which is if you're standing there singing about it. And secondly, I, I think there's, there's time for the ear to have a different uh, sound rather than the sung, the sung text. And uh, I try to make a balance. I, I hope there's not too much spoken text, but there is... There is text uh, spoken when I, I think that the ear welcomes it and and the the audience can grasp what quickly has been uh, implied and, and the next stage is imminent and comes along. 
For, for example, the, the, the second scene, the, the director of the gallery, who, who is uh, Vincent's uncle, and he's welcoming him and telling him now this is how you should work in the gallery and we want you to sell paintings. Vincent was not the slightest bit convinced by any of this and he was going only to placate his father, basically. Uh, but for the director to be singing, it seemed to me to be uh, false in a way. But he, he just speaks and tells what he wants. He's a businessman. Get on with it. Get out of the way. Uh, but there is singing as much more singing in the scene than there is spoken text. But we, we've had that discussion and resolved it uh, amicably. You're still friends. Uh, absolutely, amazing. that's, that's for sure. Well, then what, ben, what Bernard says is, it only reminds me that it, it offers finally the composers. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he is the one who makes decisions. And that it is finally, a dr- the drama of an opera is a drama among voices whether spoken or sung, uh, of, of any range at all. It's not primarily in the text, uh, though there wouldn't be an opera without a text. No. It's still a musical experience, and as, as it should be. And librettists, again, have to learn to abide by musical decisions. I think from a composer's point of view, and certainly from mine and my knowledge of, of the repertoire, uh, so much happens in the pit which is very often ignored by directors and producers and so on. I mean, you know in Mozart which character's coming on next. I mean, she's already in the flute and, and so on. And in Wagner, of course, that's an impelius and Melisande. I mean, that's a con- continuous circle between the stage and the pit and the stage and the pit. And in a way, I, I, I think I come out of that sort of thinking of uh, the relationship between the music and the action and the text. Someone has said to me that there's great power in the orchestral line. I haven't heard any of it, of course, as yet. Uh, that uh, a lot of the power of the music does rest with the instruments. Is that the case? Or? I, I think so. Um, I mean, one, one's aiming for a synthesis so that everything pulls together toward the, the aim of the, of, of the opera. Uh, but let me put it another way, and Sandy has heard me say this I don't know how many times. How much longer do I have to hear a piano playing my orchestral music? Mm. It drives me scatty. It sounds nothing like it. It gives the players and the singers the wrong impression and so on. I understand the practicability of it I am very well. I've done a fair amount of repetitor work myself. Um, but it's not until you hear how... The voices are drawn into an orchestral timbre, and the, and the orchestra then prolongs the timbre of the voices. It's a very different thing from just setting words to music. Tell me how you lay out the life of the painter. I mean, it's a, a set of, what, 12, 13 scenes and two acts? or 13 and two acts, yeah. Okay. So tell me, where do we go? Where do we start? Uh, and where do we end? We start at the end, <laughs> as it were, and uh, return to that at the end. It's a, it's an odd question. There are certain uh, – clear from Van Gogh's biography, there were certain moments that are more dramatic, uh, larger moments than uh, than others. But his life was not at all melodramatic. Uh, he, 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 he wasn't a hero, a king. 
uh, lover. Uh, he he was a quiet, though disturbed, uh, artist. So to to translate that life onto the large operatic stage uh, is a question. There have been painters in operas before. Putting an artist on stage is always difficult uh, because so much of the meaning of a life and the drama of a life is inside and unseeable and unspoken. Uh, and you can't bring paintings to life in some way. So we tried to think about how. I mean, I think, first of all, in not in poetic terms, but in practical terms, I think, how is Act One going to end? Act One has to have has to be exciting because you want to get people to come back for the beginning of Act Two. It needs a big, you know, somewhat, con, you know, concertato finale to get them back. Then you think of the end of Act Two. Then you go back to the important thing is how to open it, how to get somebody, how to introduce somebody into this musical world, how to introduce a character, how to get an audience leaning forward in its seats to find out what would happen next. So those are all before the actual writing of things. Uh, then you have to begin also to think about if there's a chorus, we have to find when there's moments for chorus. Where do you put arias and where do you put trios and how do you want to uh, change? How do you have a make – if you want to have a character grow, then between scene three and the four, how much time should go by? Uh, so on. What are the, who are the important people in his life? And in Van Gogh's case, his brother was obviously the most important person in his life. Uh, so you, you, you plot out scenes where the brother will be at the beginning, at the end, where in the middle. His parents, his, uh, his mistresses, his uh, doctors and keepers. And uh, how do you also show the slow and, – and where do you start it? The slow deterioration of, uh, of his mind. Even as his art becomes uh, uh, greater, his own capacities become enfeebled. And uh, finally, I also saw a difference between his life in the Netherlands, say, and everything, the dark north, and the freedom that going to the south of France, that the sun uh, and uh, the colors of the south gave to him, and his really passionate relationship with Paul Gauguin and his sense of creating a community of artists who could take advantage of the sun and of nature. So that tended to divide it. Well, maybe we'd have a dark first act and a, and a bright second act. Uh, and you begin to play with materials like that, just sort of putting them in various combinations to see what will work. Then you get down to the hard part of actually making human beings. Where are you while all these decisions are being – while this structure is being developed? Oh, I'm I'm waiting for the ma next mail delivery. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> we have to agree uh, on the basic shape, shape of things yes, before yes, we, we get yeah, into we, the we, lines. Really, yeah. I mean, I had a very, very clear notion of what Sandy was aiming at, and uh, even if I didn't have the particular text as such yet, uh, but it came fairly quickly. And once I once I had the first act, then I could go to work knowing that he would then be working on the second act and any amendments and questions we, we just sorted out over the phone basically or, or when we saw each other at the, at the academy. But you worked from his libretto. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Prima le parole. Uh, Dopo yes. la musica. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we usually have some musical breaks in, in this program and which doesn't quite fit in because we don't have any of the music available as yet from your opera. But, uh, Mr. McClatchy, you did offer a couple of uh, arias that you thought might be useful. And 
Uh, not to a discussion of, of the opera. Not of the, no. But since you have just put out this book on seven Mozart librettos, I noticed that one of the arias you chose was from The Marriage of Figaro. The aria called Dove Sono from Act 3 okay. of uh, Marriage of Figaro. Uh, I chose it because, well, I wanted to... I'm going to put a little ad for my Mozart book in here. It's curious for any number of reasons. It's certainly one of the most beautiful arias ever written. It's interesting in in the structure of operas in in general. The Countess, uh, Figaro has been popular since it was first performed and uh, has been performed since 1786 continually all around the world. Uh, And... uh, but it's it's become – Don Giovanni was much more popular in the 19th century than Figaro. And uh, it's interesting to watch how operas come into favor and, and fade from favor for, for various reasons. Um, Così Van Tutte, for example, was loathed almost from the beginning, thought that the text thought to be unworthy of Mozart's genius. And yet in the 20th century, in the age of Freud, it's <laughs> very peculiar combinations of feelings and, and uh, individuals became, made the opera much more popular. In the case of Figaro, um, the countess who was n- not so central a figure as others – became more so in the 20th century, a kind of psychology. We, we found her sympathetic. This woman who opens her heart up uh, to the audience uh, as the way she cannot do with the other characters in the opera, by and large, becomes the emotional heart of the opera and uh, much more important in many uh, audiences' eyes than other busier, more important characters. And this is the moment when she does that, uh, an aria in which she opens her heart to to grieve at having lost the love of her husband uh, and yet at the same time feeling a love for the man she's come to loathe. Uh, it's complicated psychology, familiar at the same heart and heartbreaking always when you hear it done this way. She, she sings it twice, uh, the second time through a, a hushed, hushed manner. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of writing. And if I may, I'd like to read you the text before we hear it, if mm-hmm. I can do that. Sure. The reason I did this book, Seven Mozart Librettos, to begin with was that most often we read librettos when we pay attention to them at all in CD booklets or in, or in super titles, and uh, they're very flat and prosy. And I, I was interested in translating these librettos, first of all, what interested Mozart in these texts to begin with? Why did he want to set this particular text? But also because I thought that the original verse forms were important. Uh, first of all, they're important to a composer because they help him structure things uh, in verse. But also, for example, in the Countess's case, you hear suddenly what she says in rhymed uh, language. You realize the instinctive elegance of this person. She's a countess after all. She doesn't spill her feelings. She reveals them almost reluctantly uh, through pe- – they peep through the elegance of her remarks. So here, here's what the aria says in uh, this uh, in English translation. Where are they now, the vanished days, the moments of pleasure's afterglow? Where are the vows, the murmured praise spoken by that liar so long ago? Why, if sweetness turns to regret, if every hope becomes a grief, why is it still I cannot forget the love that vies with disbelief? If only my waiting, 
my long endurance, the patience that true love imparts, could bring the slightest reassurance of changing his ungrateful heart. Dovesana from The Marriage of Figaro, a selection of one of our guests in the studio, J.D. McClatchy, who is the librettist of the opera we are profiling today, and that is the opera Vincent, and the composer is with us too, and his name is Bernard Rands. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So let's get back to to Vincent, if we may. I know that uh, you based a lot of this on the letters of, of the painter. I came across a couple of quotes. I don't know whether you particularly use these. Uh, and all of these are, are to his brother, Theo. One of them is, oh, the beautiful sun of midsummer. It beats upon my head, and it, I do not doubt it makes one a little queer. And you had mentioned earlier about the, the power of, of sunshine in his life. Uh, another was, in a painting, I want to say something comforting in the way that music is comforting. I want to paint men and women with that element of the eternal that was formerly symbolized by the halo and that we try to express by the actual radiance and vibration of our colors. And the final quote is just, mis- which is, I guess, from a dying remark, misery will never end. Uh, I gather that these feelings are being transmitted or, or you're attempting to in the opera. Yes, I don't think we cite any one of those three, but uh, I think the sentiments contained in them are, are certainly uh, prevalent in the uh, in the music and in the rest of the of the libretto. There, there certainly, as Sandy said, you know, the, the latest edition is six volumes with the drawings and so on. It's just so beautiful. The previous three volumes I've carted around with me for for donkey's years, but to have this new set now, I mean, there's, there's such a uh, wealth of, uh, of material to to draw on. Yes, I mean, at, at various stages. You see, we're dealing with someone who is, well, now we know a, a genius, but let's say in retrospect, but someone who who is actually Vince Leofter, who's directing the production, has called a misfit. It seems to him, and I think it's a fair uh, summary of Vincent's life, that no matter what he tried, uh, 
and he tried it with, with great enthusiasm to begin with, usually either to placate his father or his brother or someone else. Uh, it failed on him. He, he couldn't. Even his relationship with his father was an anxious one. So uh, we're dealing with someone who was was a genius who, who apparently now, it seems well established, was epileptic. He certainly uh, had this religious fervor uh, high-pitched uh, sense of searching for God. Uh, he was an alcoholic. Uh, it, clearly that is mentioned only once in the opera, which is when uh, when Dr. Perron's daughter mentions that he's, Vincent's gone to his room where he keeps a bottle of absinthe, I guess, or whatever. But there are plenty of instances, in, in uh, especially relating to the Paris period where, where he met Gauguin for the first time and Le, Le Tambourin, the café on Boulevard Clichy, which, uh, where they used to drink fairly large quantities of, uh, of absinthe. And these, these extraordinary combination of, of qualities which are ever-present in, in him uh, but which gradually lead to a deterioration, uh, both physical and, uh, and mental. So... He is placed in a number of of contexts. I wouldn't call them vignettes, but more tableau kind of uh, presentation, which are real uh, experiences from his life. Uh, the first one I mentioned a moment or two ago is when he's working in the gallery for his uncle. He hated it and was dismissed because he he thought there were only two pieces that were worth showing anybody. And a farmer comes in and wants to buy a painting of cows, which he could see if he looks out of his own living room window. And then a lady with two daughters, uh, she's just decorated her living room in a nice blue and she wants a sofa-sized piece. I mean, all of this drives Vincent uh, to distraction. And so he's fired because he simply will not cooperate. Then he becomes a pastor, a, a missionary to the Borinage, to the mining community. There's an underground uh, accident, and he tries to help them. Uh, and again, uh, even though he gets them to sing a typical hymn of the of the time, the period, uh, it, it fails. It's, uh, he can't help them. And um, then his relationship with Sien, the prostitute, she doesn't want him, nobody needs you, no, Vincent. Everybody tells him he's not needed, and every successive tableau uh, increases the tension around him, surrounding him, and his reaction to it. Uh, I mean, he desperately wanted a, a loving family life. I think in, in general he was an outgoing, warm, uh, sympathetic, loving person. But because of all of these other factors in his makeup, they simply would not come into the right combination at the right time to allow him to, to be what he might otherwise have been. And therefore, I think, this search for his salvation, his God, was in his, in his, uh, in his work, in his painting, which he, it, why a man paints, he says over and over again, is to see the world in my mind. That's why a man paints. You're making me weep. <laughs> so, I'm quoting it's quite the, a story, of uh, course. Yeah, and uh, you you've really bringing shape to it. Apparently, yeah. he he was what what Bernard says. Of course, is true. But Van Gogh was also a man. I mean, it's certainly true that he was outcast and uh, misunderstood. But he did not make himself always very sympathetic no. to those around him. He was passionate about what he did. I mean, uh, when he lives with a prostitute in the Hague. Uh, 
he says, I'm going to make your shoulder famous. You know, I am, uh, you, are, you do this, I'll do this. She says, I just want a normal life with my children. I, I don't want, I don't care what, what you do. With uh, Van Gogh, uh, Gauguin, he says, I, let's just paint. You're always lecturing to me about what art should do and what art should be. Just, why can't we just live? And that was the intensity uh, of uh, Van Gogh, his sense of what he was doing and how he wanted to do it was overwhelming uh, to other people. And again, it forced them in a way to keep him at a certain distance. Then he couldn't understand why he had been pushed aside. Only his brother was patient and kind of really a remarkable story in in human history of uh, the love between two brothers. And and his brother, unfortunately, couldn't save him. He was just too far gone. But yes, it is a very touching story. And the the quotes you uh, gave, although they're not in uh, the opera itself, remind you of what a kind of mind to say for that one I was very struck by that line about you want to take the halo yes. and make and put it inside a person, not around that person's head uh, when he said uh, when he was asked why he had painted the sunflower paintings, he said, "Oh, I was depicting gratitude uh, and it makes you stop and you think what what does that mean exactly he had uh, he had a mind that was always ahead of the people around him. And uh, it makes him a fascinating character but, and, and difficult to get hold of. And uh, he, was, he finally had difficulty living with himself. Now, you said that ultimately an opera is music and that you have to step out of the way for the composer. Mr. Rance, talk to me, talk to us about the music. I mean, I think people are interested in finding out what you have attempted I'm going to give you an answer which seems glib. <laughs> we do it many times because composers get asked this question. Sure. If I could tell you in words what my music is, I would take the easier way and use words. Uh, oh, by the way, I do, play I do that, have the, the dances at Arles that are part of the opera. Which is part of the, of oh, the opera. Really? Okay. That is the one piece from Le Tambourin Suites which is uh, simply transposed, translated out. And, and that is a, it occurs at a moment in the first part of the second act, which opens with the yellow house, and Vincent is there waiting for Gauguin. He's prepared the bedroom with the sunflowers and so on. And he's going on about what a great town it is, and oh, you love it here. And he lists all of the things that are available, and, and all Gauguin says is, what I want is some absinthe, and two luscious breasts. So Vincent said, okay, I'll show you the town. Off they go. They go to the local dance hall. That's when the dance at all occurs. And, of course, they're already fairly inebriated, so they're stumbling around among the dancers, and uh, Gauguin particularly is looking for a bedmate for the evening. I mean, he's not interested in dancing. And But, but gradually, the, the two of them become a little separated. But the the next scene is they're back at the yellow house and Gauguin is, in fact, uh, just putting on his clothes upstairs and the, the it's lady of his choice that night is still with him. He comes down, he's packed his bag, he's leaving. And that, of course, is a tremendous shock to, to Vincent, to one that he never overcomes, ever. Uh, but for me to describe the music, it's very, it's very hard. I've, I've tried so often. And unless... Unless any listener knows my lineage musically, it's not easy to explain. I'm often referred to as a colorist, but I think it's one of the terms that, one of the last terms that 
irritates me by critics because I'm not a colorist. I mean, I, I don't even know what it means when I come to mm. deal with, with harmony and, and the quality of, of, uh, of densities and so on of, of uh, the music that I make. I know what they're saying. Uh, I think I know what they, they're intending to, to convey. Uh, but all music has color, so every music, even the worst, is, is, is coloristic in some way or other. In terms of the opera, if there's anything that is vaguely uh, a model for for Vincent in in my mind would be Pelleas and Melisande, Debussy, in in that the text, uh, the music follows the the rhythms and and the, the text in a parlato quality, parlando, uh, and there are. Uh, three moments when Vincent has what might be referred to as arias in the traditional sense uh, because I, I tried to avoid what we jokingly call the Park and Bark opera where all the action stops and you put somebody in the centre and they they sing to the top row of the upper balcony. Much as I love the repertoire, I, I've always felt that a little bit uh, irritating. But uh, there are three errors which, again, came later in the composition after we'd started uh, rehearsing in or the uh, very early stages. And uh, Sandy provided me with a, with a text, which I almost repeat verbatim in each instance, but though the music around it changes, uh, the vocal line stays the same. That's always been a fascination of mine. Uh, and it's... A, it's uh, Vincent saying, why have you forsaken me? Father, his own father, why have you forsaken me? Shen, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and finally, Gauguin, Paul, and oh God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, I think they helped to make a and bridge the various stages of the opera uh, that this increasing loneliness, which, as Sandy said, it brings on himself, but is incapable of... Doing anything about it? That's not answering your question. It's avoiding well, it in terms of music. But. Yeah, it says a great deal. And uh, let's listen to the the dance, the dance from Arles. Yeah, that dance is? at Arles. Yeah. At Arles. Yeah. All right, let's listen to that and yeah. get a taste of it. And you, as you listen to it, you can, if, if you want to tap your feet, you can do it like this: one, two, three, one, two, three, three, two, three, three, two, three, pa, pa, one, two, three, one, two. So there's there's five threes. And a four, five threes and a four. It's an odd man out situation, uh, and uh, it's built on uh, on whole tone scales without getting into technicalities that many listeners may not understand. Uh, but that's that's what it what it does. All right, here's a moment from the new opera Vincent. Thank you. 
We have just heard the dance at Arles from the Opera Vincent by Bernard Brands. Performed beautifully, I might add, by the Philadelphia Orchestra, Ricardo Muti conducting. It's a beautiful recording. Great. Thank you. Uh, how would you describe your colleague's music? Well, to be perfectly frank, I haven't heard the music yet. I know his other music, and uh, I can understand uh, Bernard's reluctance to describe it. But uh, let me just say, um, I've been hearing around the house from the conductor, Arthur Fagan, from some of the singers, uh, everybody I've talked to, uh, all of whom have at this point heard more than I have, uh, how thrilled they are by the score how uh, really shimmering and powerful a piece of music it is. I, I can't tell you how excited I am uh, to hear it <laughs> tonight for the first We've time. We've been listening to piano versions. I've been, yeah, the wretched piano where everything is reduced <laughs> to a terrible monochrome uh, banging. And, uh, the, the, uh, but the, the, uh, the orchestra, which is uh, the university's top orchestra, uh, and uh, particularly um, – uh, Arthur Fagan, uh, the conductor, have been uh, just physically excited by uh, playing this music and uh, listen, listening to it as they play it. So the revelation for you is still to come. <laughs> Indeed it is, and I can't wait. Well, we just have a couple minutes left. Talk a little bit about the production, uh, which I understand is quite unusual, uh, with a lot of visuals, with projections, etc. Have you seen any of that? Uh, we have. I have. I just got in uh, yesterday. So uh, I haven't seen uh, a great deal of it. And this is always the stage in the technical parts where adjustments are being made. Uh, and I get up to say, wait a minute, where's the this or the that? And they say, oh, please. You know, uh, we said <laughs> one thing last night at rehearsal. The, the Van Gogh comes on towards the end and I leaned over to Vincent. I said – he looks like something out of the preppy handbook. I mean, he's very much too well-dressed for uh, Van Gogh. And I went over afterwards like a fool and said to the costume designer, you know, excuse me, but uh, that, that very attractive yellow sweater he's wearing and those shiny Brooks Brothers shoes. Crease in I his said, pants, uh, yeah, crease in his khakis. I said, wow. Uh, and she said, oh, those aren't the real costumes. Uh, they're being made in Thailand and they're getting here in a couple of days. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, it's very hard to tell yeah. when people are working things out exactly what the final product will The pace look like. is uh, <laughs> snail pace. I mean, they keep stopping and so on. So you don't get a sense of the, of the momentum that's built uh, through the opera. But they have re- uh, very uh, good and advanced plans, uh, especially. I mean, I th- myself think that computers are... Part of the future, a big part of the future in opera productions uh, for many reasons. And uh, I know IU was uh, very interested in pursuing this and uh, using its own equipment and improving it to see what can be done. And it should be very exciting. How do the two of you feel about letting go of your little baby, uh, releasing well, it to the public? In ways, we've done that for most of our lives. Uh, uh, you simply have to do that. Uh, and you don't know what its fate is, even less for, for a composer than I think for a poet, because presumably the the reader who picks up a book of poetry uh, has a, a vested interest in, in, in grappling with what he or she is reading. Uh, we are dependent on interpreters, uh, whether it's a single uh, soloist or whether it's a huge orchestra and chorus. And... Uh, 
you know, it can be many things to many people. And sometimes I'm I'm sure it, if 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 I were to know everything about all the performances of my of my music, I'd be very thankful not to have been at some of them. <laughs> uh, at others, of course, I thrilled to have been present because when you when you do when that does come together, uh, it, it's well, it's what one's life is about. I mean, that's how I've lived my life since I was 10 years of age, writing music that is then played and listened to and so on. But to your point, Peter, just very quickly, opera is a collaborative art. Uh, all right, so we, we made all of the, the basic ingredients from the beginning. But then comes the, the music director, and then comes the stage director and the costume director. And now in this produ- production, the young man Barry Steele, who's doing all the design, lighting, and so on, uh, and the chorus uh, director, they have all, uh, in one way or another, uh, contributed to the final uh, effect of the, of the opera and helped us realize what we've dreamed about. Well, we hope it's a long life for your baby, <laughs> and uh, I do appreciate your spending time with us in the studio. Pleasure. Uh, thank you. Composer Bernard Renz, librettist J.D. McClatchy. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.